Thank you, worship team. We have an amazing worship team. And just, you just don't know the commitment and the time that they put into the worship that you're a part of here at the church. And they just, they amaze me at their commitment and what they do. This weekend, we're going to continue in our study of what we've been talking about is the major truths that we learn from the minor prophets. And this week, we're going to continue. And the prophet we're going to talk about this week is Jonah. And I love this story. And it's one of those that most of us know the story of Jonah. Because Jonah got swallowed by a whale. But the problem is... We miss the whole story because we're focused on the whale. There's a lot more going on in this story. And see, Jonah is a unique book, and that's why I love it. Because it's not really a book about a prophecy being told. Because to me, when you look at a prophet and you look at a book that talks about his work, basically what's happening is God is giving him a word. He goes to the people. He tells the word. And then we get to watch it unfold where God proves himself and God shows himself. And God says, see, I told you. But Jonah's not that book. And it's a little confusing. And what happens is is the theologians argue about this book. As I was studying and preparing for this, I finally just had to shut the books because you just get into these arguments and you're, you're going, yeah, that's right. Oh, oh, but what about this? And the theologians just go crazy over this book because it's so different. You see, because it's a short little book, and if you look in your Bible, and if your Bible's formatted like mine, it fits all on those two pages. Four chapters. It's 47 verses. And when you look at a prophet, you would think that all the verses would be about the prophecy and things that are happening because of that prophecy. Of those 47 verses, only 14, only 14 verses are about the prophecy and what happens. The other 33 verses are about Jonah and him wrestling and struggling with God about his humanity and his feelings And what he wanted versus what God wanted. This book, the reason I love this book is because it sort of mirrors my favorite person in the New Testament, which is King David. And King David, I I just, he's my favorite person. And, And the reason is, is because in the Bible, it says that David was a man after God's own heart. But David messed up royally. But God never took that title away from him. God never walked away from him. God worked through him. And David struggled with his relationship with God and he worked through it. And that's what I love about Jonah because that's what we're going to see here in this prophecy and in this book of Jonah is him struggling with his humanity And God never turning his back on him, but pushing him even further. So what we're going to do is we're going to read. It's going to be our Bible reading is going to be a little bit different this morning. We're going to read the first three verses from Jonah 1, Jonah 3, and Jonah 4. Because these are some discussions of just sort of leads up to what God's telling Jonah to do and sort of Jonah's reaction to that. So let's start with Jonah 1, and it says, Now the Lord, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amidia, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go to, to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So let's go to chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, 
Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then in chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and says, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to dig into your word, let's pray that you just break any barriers, any walls in our, in our hearts. As we listen to a man that is struggling with his relationship with you. He's struggling with his desires versus your desires. And as we watch you play out this, this story in his life where he needs to learn that you are God and we are not. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We don't know a lot about Jonah. He's only mentioned two times. He's mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25 and then in the book of Jonah, of course. His prophecy in 2 Kings was a very popular and it showed his nationalistic fever um, as he was talking about this because it was to the Israelites and it was to the nation of Israel. And he prophesied that Jeroboam II would restore territory that Israel had lost. So in 2 Kings 14, 25, it says he restored the border of Israel from Lebanon as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amidai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now Jonah is better known than many of the other minor prophets. And the reason he's better known is not because we know more about him. It's just we know the story because we teach it in VBS. We teach it in all of our children's programs. We teach it to our, our children just constantly. And so we know it. We hear it. And that's why we know Jonah. We know his name. And it's unique because of all of the 12 minor prophets, he is an anti-hero. He's not someone you want to look up to. He's not someone that you go, I want to be just like him. We don't wear the, the little shield with Jonah on it and run around like we're Superman. He's not the guy that we want to follow. You see, his attitudes and actions stand as a warning, not his words. His words aren't a warning of what God's going to do. It's his attitudes and action that stand as a warning to us that this is what we don't need to do. He's referred to a lot of times as the runaway prophet. He lived in Gath-Hefer and it was about three miles northeast of Nazareth. And see, rather than, and there's a map I want to show you that sort of talks, that shows where this is. It's in the northern territory of Israel. Israel at this time was broken into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. And it's up there in the northern kingdom. And it's about three miles northeast of Nazareth. And God came to Jonah and rather than giving him a prophecy that goes to the people of Israel, he commissioned him to go to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, not the Israelites. So the Bible tells us the word came to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now I want to stop here. I want to talk about the word that God gave him. 
And when I talk about the book of Jonah, it's not about what we assume that it's about or what we generally think that it's about. We assume it's about this prophecy. But I want you to look at what God told him to do. He says, arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. There's no repentance. He doesn't say, call them to repentance. He doesn't say, call them to worship me. These are people that don't worship God. He's sending a prophet to a pagan area. He's just saying, go to Nineveh and tell them that they're evil. And that's it. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It's now northern Iraq. It was considered the greatest city in the Near East with, a massive, with massive walls that were up to 100 feet high. And it had a reputation for paganism, idolatry, and immorality. And the Assyrians were not friends of the Jewish people. They were oppressors. So to sort of put this into context, just imagine we're back in World War II. And there's a Jewish man that lives in New York. And God comes to him one night and says, I want you to go to Germany. And I want you to preach that God is going to bring great destruction to the Germans unless they repent. And instead of going to Germany, he gets on a ship and goes to Hong Kong. That's what we're talking about. God has called Jonah to go talk to a people that were oppressing his people. And that was a hard thing for him to do. But we begin to see things that have built up in Jonah's life because of the way they were treating them. So Jonah responded by doing what? By heading in the wrong direction. You see, he turned God down and he went to the port of Joppa, which is in the complete opposite direction. And his intention was to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish is probably a city west of Gibraltar on the coast of Spain. I say probably because, once again, this is an area of theological debate. We really don't know where Tarshish is. We don't know anything about it. But if it is the place that we think it is, it is 3,000 miles from Nineveh, as far as he could go from it. In today's term, what we would say is Jonah ran away and he headed for Timbuktu. We really don't know where he was going, but it was as far away as he could go. You see, he wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. But I want you to listen very carefully. When we flee from the Lord, we never get to where we are going. And we always pay our own fare. But when you go to the Lord, when you go the Lord's way, you not only get to go, you only get where you're going, but he pays the fare for you. And see, there's a certain foolishness in running from the Lord. Similar to when Adam and Eve tried to hide from God in the garden. Oh, we'll just hide over here and God won't find us. And he'll never know what we did just doesn't know these things. God already knew what they did. He knew exactly where they were in the garden. But that's what we do as humans. We think we can hide from God. There is nowhere we can go to hide from him. Psalms 139, 7 and 8 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. You see, there's no place that we can run that will escape the presence of the God. You see, trying to escape the presence of God is like, is like trying to escape air. You can't do it. And if you do, it doesn't end very well for you. It's everywhere and you need it. You need it to live. See, I don't think that Jonah was trying to get totally away from the presence of God. I think what Jonah was doing was saying, if I go as far away as I can in the opposite direction, God's going to have to send someone else because it's going to be way too much trouble to get me back. 
he learns a little bit different as we go on in the story. So as he gets on the boat, God sent a storm. This was not a natural, this was not a natural storm. This just wasn't a natural weather disturbance. God called a storm. And I love to watch the crew of the ship. These are pagan people. They are not Christians. They do not serve our God. They serve other gods. And so the crew of the ship, as the storm was going on, they prayed fervently to their gods. Not only did they pray to their gods, you see in some of these gods that you pray to, you can't really even pray to them. You have to pray to their patrons, and then they, those patrons, will go to the God and talk to them for you. And so they're out there doing everything that they can, because they don't know which God is mad. And they don't want to miss any of the bases. But we've got to remember, these are pagan people. And so while they're praying to their God, one of them sort of opens his eyes and sort of looks around, and he goes, wait a second, where's Jonah? Isn't he on the ship also? And so the captain of the ship goes down to the bottom of the ship and he finds Noah, Jonah, sleeping. They are about to die. And he is sound asleep in the bottom of the boat. And I think the most embarrassing moment in Jonah's life is about to happen. Because this pagan man who was praying to pagan gods looks at him and says, what are you doing? Wake up. You need to pray to your God. So a pagan man is telling a Christian man to pray to the one and only real God. Because they want to be saved. You see, there's a lot of sleeping Christians in the world today. You see, when the world needs us the most, they need our testimony the most. Some of us are just asleep. And we're not doing what God's called us to do. We're just figuring someone else will do it. But see, when you think about about Christians who are sleeping, you know, what they'll say is, oh, I talk about Jesus. You can talk in your sleep. But you say, but I have a walk for Jesus. Well, last I checked, you can walk in your sleep. We need to be awake and we need to be doing what God has called us to do. And as the story unfolds, the crew of the ship eventually figures out that Jonah's the problem. But Jonah's response just blows me away. Because to me, it seems like you say, guys, this is my fault. I am running from God. By the way, the God who not only created this sea, but controls this sea. And he is just stirring this thing up right now because of me. And he doesn't say, I need to repent. No, what he says is, so what you need to do is throw me overboard. Because basically what he is saying is, I would rather die than have to do what God has asked me to do. Once again, the sailors, the pagans... They go, oh, no, there is no way we're going to do that. And they grabbed their oars, and they tried as hard as they could to get back to shore so that they could save Jonah's life. And it just, it wasn't working. That ship was going down. And so they did something that, once again, was this huge embarrassment to Jonah. They got on their knees, and they prayed to God. And they said, God, do not hold against us what we're about to do. They were afraid of the anger and the wrath of God for killing somebody that served him. And they asked forgiveness and they threw Jonah overboard. And then the amazing thing happened. The sea stopped. It's flat. And what happened at that moment, the sailors moved from fearing the storm to fearing God. Just like the disciples did in the boat when Jesus was on the boat and the storm was about ready 
to knock this, to sink the boat. And they found Jesus once again asleep in the front of the boat. And they wake him up and he calms the sea. What happens is, is they went from the fear of that storm to the fear of Jesus. So as Jonah is sinking in the water, God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And theologians get stuck here. And they love to argue and they love to debate. Was it a real fish? Was it a special fish? Was it even a real story? Maybe it's a fable. Maybe, maybe this, maybe, maybe that. Books and books and chapters and chapters. All about, could this have really happened? I finally just shut the book and I says, how can we serve a God who created the earth in seven days? And why do we believe in a Jesus who died on the cross and was raised from the dead three days later? And in that process of his death, he atoned for all of our sins. But we get stuck on talking about whether it was a real whale or not. If God needed it to be a whale, it was a whale. And Jonah went in it and he lived there for three days. He was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. And then after a chapter of reflection and prayer, that's chapter two of Jonah. We're sort of just skipping over chapter two. It's Jonah's prayer in the belly of the whale and it's sort of, it's his repentance. But as we go on in chapters three and four, you're really gonna wonder, did he really repent? Or was this one of those prayers, I got in trouble and this is my punishment and now I want to repent. And I want you to feel sorry for me. But he prays to God, he repents. He sort of tries to find peace with God. So the fish vomited Jonah out on the dry land. And like I say, this may have been a special sea creature, unique just for this purpose that was created for this and never seen again. Could be a whale, we don't know. And it doesn't matter. It happened. And stories have been documented of fishermen uh, surviving in the belly of a whale. In fact, we just had a story a couple of weeks ago about a man who was swallowed. Now, he was only in the whale for a minute or so, but he survived to tell about it. Now, most people, when you hear the story, have this vision of Jonah being spewed out on the beach. And the fishermen of Nineveh were standing there, and here this man comes out of the mouth of this fish with seaweed wrapped all around him. And they go and tell the town, this man just came out of the sea in, in the mouth of this fish. And so, of course, that would make a great impact on the people of Nineveh. So that's why Jonah was so successful when he spoke to them. There's a problem with that. Nineveh, if you look on the map that, up there, Nineveh is 375 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. So unless that fish can swim through sand, it didn't happen that way. You see, I think what happened is Jonah left his home, went to Joppa, went out on the ship, the whale grabbed him, and they believe that the whale dropped him off back pretty close to Joppa, which means Jonah had to probably take the most humiliating, humbling walk in his life because he still had to walk the 375 miles that God told him to walk in the first place to go to Nineveh. Now through this story and through the story of the whale, Jesus confirmed the truth of Jonah. You see, the Bible has this unique way. And it's one of the reasons that we look at it as the infallible truth of God because it works within itself to prove itself. Matthew 12, 39 through 40 says, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of 
the earth. So Jonah was spit out. Don't know if he just said, I'm going to Nineveh and started walking or whether it happened right as he hit the beach. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You see, God will do that. God is a God of chances. Sometimes we don't do exactly what God tells us to do or wants us to do. I identify with Jonah because I'm one of those. I am a Jonah. God told me at 16 years old that I was going to go into ministry. I told him he was crazy. What I told him was not nice. I had grown up in a ministry-based family. I wanted nothing to do with it. And I went my own way. And about 23 years later, I woke up one morning. I got dressed for work. I went to my office. I sat down. And I looked up and I saw the sign that was on my door. And the word minister was on my door. And I thought, how did this happen? But what happened is, is God took that 23 years and everything that I did in those 23 years, God has used as a talent and something that I use in my work that I do in ministry today. So God told Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And sometimes we call Jonah the reluctant prophet. You see, God had Jonah right where he wanted him. So Jonah got to Nineveh and Jonah preached the most uninspiring sermon in the Bible. And once again, theologians have a heyday with this. Oh, he must have said more. Oh, there are things that he probably didn't record, but he had to say more because there's no way the people would respond if that's all he said. I don't think so. I think this is what he said. And he goes in the city and he goes, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. For three days, he walks around. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. No call for repentance. No call for turning around. Not even a chance for redemption. That is his message to these people. Eight words. He had no jokes. He had no illustrations from his life. He had no emotional altar call. He had no 10 points, no three points, no anything. You see, it was as if Jonah did not want these people to repent and be saved. He was doing what God told him to do. And that's it. But the response was overwhelming. I look at it like a Billy Graham crusade. It was amazing. That man could literally pull 15,000 people into an auditorium just because they say, Billy Graham's coming. And 15,000 people show up and he would walk up to the stage. And all I remember is he would walk up to the stage and say, if you want to be saved, please come to the altar. And they'd start, Mike would start playing just as I am. And 12,000 people come to the altar. That's what happened here. They believed in God. It doesn't matter what the message was. The message hit home to them. And they wanted to repent. They called for a a fast. They put on sackcloth. They repented from the greatest to the least. The king of Nineveh, Nineveh repented and called the people to repentance. And when God saw their repentance, which he didn't ask for, When he saw their repentance, he relented of the disaster. And chapter 4 starts off with, this displeased Jonah. Imagine this, God tells you to do something that's hard, and you go to do it, and it works. So you have an evangelist and he goes out 
And he goes to this great crusade. And thousands of people are saved. And hundreds of people are healed. And he goes home and his wife says, how was it? He goes, that was really disappointing. Tons of people got saved. Hundreds of people got healed. It's the worst revival I have ever held in my life. So Jonah 1, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made a haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? It's a really good question. Do you do well to be angry? And in current days, Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? You see, we could call Jonah the pouting prophet. He went up on a hill. He made a booth for himself. And his plan was to watch and hope, hope that the city would be destroyed. And it was hot. It was like today in Florida. Actually, probably a little bit hotter than that. And in his mercy, in God's mercy, he appointed a plant to grow and shade Jonah from the sun. And then the very next day, God appointed a worm to destroy that plant. And the sun beat down on him. And Jonah asked if he might die. But God said to Jonah, A second time, do you well to be angry? And now it's for the plant. And he said, listen to this. Yes, I do well to be angry. Enough to die. You see, he would rather die than see the forgiveness of God showered down on the people he felt were undeserving. There's a scene in The Chosen that I love that when I, when I knew I was going to be teaching this, I saw it and I go, that, that's it. When Jesus reveals who he is to the world, he goes to Samaria. The Jewish people hate the Samaritans. And he drags his disciples to Samaria to reveal himself. And so they're sitting in this town that they don't want to be in and they're grumbling And Jesus and a couple of the disciples are out walking one morning and he sees some Samaritans and he goes, Shalom. And they start throwing rocks at him and cursing him and saying awful things to him. And the disciples are thinking, this is great. He's finally revealed who he is. He is going to bring thunder and lightning and fire from heaven. And he is going to consume these people. And they looked at God, they said, do it. And he says, no, I forgive them. They go, what? He goes, I forgive them. Wait, you want me to take these people that I am trying to call to repentance, that I'm trying to to teach them something new, that that are just broken people that need help. You want me to to burn them to death? And the disciples said, well, when you say it that way, it doesn't sound so neat anymore. But that's what's going on. They They wanted Jesus just to burn these people up. And in Jonah 4, verses 10 and 11, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, 
and also much cattle. We're going to get down to the problem in Jonah's life. And this is the point where you may need to pull your toes off the floor because I may step on some toes right quick. And I'm not apologetic about this. But this is something that we need to talk about. We need to talk about it. And it's something that if you watched your TV yesterday, you watched it this morning, you listened to your radio on the way here, and it wasn't music, but it was news. It's something that we are dealing with right now, today. And it is tearing our world apart. Jonah was prejudiced. That was the problem. Jonah was prejudiced. He hated the Ninevites. He wanted them destroyed. He didn't care what God wanted. And he resented him for it. He was afraid that they might turn to the Lord and be saved. And he tells God, is this not what I said? Because you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Who wants to serve that God? I do. But he's mad at him because that's the God that he is. Now, when it served Jonah's purposes, he wanted to serve that God. But when it went against his grain, he didn't like it. Prejudice. An assumption or an opinion about someone simply based on that person's membership to a particular group. For example, against a different ethnicity, gender, or religion. Unreasonable feelings, opinions, or attitudes, especially of a hostile nature regarding an ethnic, racial, social, or religious group. Now notice what's going on here. Jonah hates the Ninevites. The Ninevites hate the Israelites. It's a circle. They both are saying they're prejudiced against me. And the other side's going, no, they're prejudiced against me. Because of something that has happened somewhere along the way, there was a hurt. And these people started to hate each other. And that's what happens is something happens. And groups of people begin to hate And sometimes when you go back and you sit down and you ask what's going on, there's been so many generations since the original problem that you don't even know what you're mad about. You just hate them. You see, we have to be careful in our own lives because we hear this, but the other question is, is are we saying it? If you hear in conversations things like, well, you know them. Well, you know, those people. Well, you know, that kind of fill in the blank. Well, anyone who can be anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If those are ways that you speak about groups of people, then what you're doing is you're showing your prejudice. But you see, the big truth from Jonah is that God will call us to places we may not want to go. The story of a pastor who was teaching on Jonah. He was using it as an example, and he went to his congregation, and he says, all right, we're going to do something. God is calling each of you to do something. And here's what I need to know. What is your Nineveh? I want you to write it down. So they wrote it down. And this one woman was sharing, and what she said was, is God's been calling me to serve. 
been calling me to serve a community that is ridden with AIDS. I can't because I'd have to change the way I think about those people. I have to change the way that I think about the people that God wants me to help and to serve. You see, she didn't want to give up her predetermined prejudice against them. But what happens is, is when God gets a hold of us and God calls us, no matter where we are, no matter what we're thinking, running from the call of God is futile. You see, in this story, God used a storm. He used a fish. He used a plant. He used a worm. And he used the hot wind to break Jonah. And see, we get distracted and we think about the whale. Well, no, there's a whale, there's a wind, there's worm, there's hot wind. All of them are equally important. The whale is not more important than the worm. The fact is, is what it's saying is, is that, and he uses the word for each one of them that God appointed. These things. So that he could speak to Jonah and teach him a lesson. You see, God is willing to break us in order for us to have his heart for his people. And he will appoint whatever he needs to appoint to help us figure that out. See, only God decides to where to pour out his salvation and his mercy. The hard part of this lesson and what he's teaching Jonah is the fact that Prejudice is part of my sin nature. Prejudice is part of your sin nature. It's been sewn into us. And I hear people say this all the time, and I I was one that I, I would say this. But I'm not prejudiced. And the best thing I can say about that is, is go back to Dr. Phil. How's that working for you? Because if we just believe blindly that we're just not, we're not looking to make sure. We need to be careful here. Prejudice can be a result of, an upbr- of our upbringing. What our parents taught us, what our aunts and uncles taught us, what our friends taught us. It can be caused by traumatic experiences that we generalize to a group. Something horrible happened. And it was because those people did it. Racism is a type of prejudice. It's a discrimination or antagonism directed against a person or a people on the basis for their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group. Jonah needed to be set free from that. You see, prejudice can get us to the point where we, like Jonah, would say, God, I would rather those people burn in hell than me go tell them about you. When I was growing up, my dad was an associate pastor at a church, and we were dealing with this issue in the church. And it was bad. And I remember my dad one day saying, he says, I just don't know. He was just frustrated. He says, when Brother Joe gets to the pearly gates and he looks in and he sees the people that are in heaven, he might just look and just say, do you have a map to hell? Because I can't go in there. That's the point that prejudice brought Jonah. And we can't afford that. And I think our nation is dealing to that level today. And we're destroying ourselves. See, we don't, but we don't want to miss out that deep love that God had for Jonah. We want God to pursue us just like he pursued Jonah. You see, the breaking of Jonah was a breakthrough for Jonah. 
And in chapter 2, the one that we, we skipped, verses 7 through 9, Jonah's praying. He says, when my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you. In your holy temple, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's two minor prophets that deal almost exclusively with Nineveh. Jonah and Nahum. And both of these stories end with a question. In Jonah, chapter 4, 11, it says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? There is no response recorded from Jonah. It ends right there. But the lesson we need to learn that the Lord is gracious toward all nations and all people. Toward Gentiles and Jews. And he will not allow us to hide our prejudices within a religious sham. He calls us to a gospel that has no limits. And a gospel that serves all people. See, the major truth is, is God will call us to a place where he needs us to proclaim the message of mercy, grace, and repentance. You see, because we're here today, we've heard that message and we've accepted that message. And running from his call is futile. He will use every method necessary to break the prejudices of our heart so that his children might hear of his great love so without any fanfare without any emotional altar call without any fancy music to get us in the mood I have a question for you that I want you to think about and we're just going to take a minute to meditate on it what is your Nineveh just pray that let's just be quiet for just a moment and I want us just to go through our hearts and to think about that question in our lives. Father, I just, just pray right now. You start breaking down walls. That you start breaking down hurts. That you start healing wounds. Wounds that we don't even know what they are. But they're wounds and they hurt. And because they hurt, it changes how we act, how we react to people. Change opinions. Change the way we look at people. Give us a love for people that are different than us. Give us a love for people that don't believe what we believe. Help us to find a way to open up conversations with those people. Instead of avoiding them, help us to want to talk to them so that we can share the truth of your gospel and bring true salvation into their lives. In your name, amen. Why don't you stand with me as we end the service? I want to send you out with a blessing. As you're leaving, if you are new to Faith Fellowship, I would love to meet you over here on the, your right on the table where the lamp is lit. And as you're leaving, um, we have our giving receptacles out in the lobby. If you want to drop your offering out there, you also can give online or give through our app. And we just want to thank you for your faithfulness to this church.
And I want to remind you that giving is a part of worship. We worship God in song. We worship God in word. And God calls us to worship him in our giving. Why? So that his message, his word, is able to be proclaimed, not only in this room, but through the outreaches that we do, through our MRP program where we touch this community, through our missionaries that we have around the world that we support. That's why we do this. Father, as we head out this morning, I just pray that you break our hearts from prejudices, that you open up our eyes, that you begin to heal rifts and wombs and divides. And God, let each one of us be a vehicle that helps in that healing. In your name, amen.